Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points, we use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So in today's show, we're going to be focusing on one issue... And that is the protests in China. We thought that merited the entire show rather than just one segment. And the data point there is 23. That is the number of major demonstrations, as verified by CNN, in China since last week. That's across 17 Chinese cities, including the capital of Beijing and the financial center of Shanghai. Down with the Communist Party, they shouted on the streets of Shanghai, an eruption of anger against a one-party state in power for over 70 years. Thousands of people blasting the government's COVID policies in China's largest public demonstrations in decades. Now the government... Now the U.S. Embassy in China is telling American citizens in the country to, quote, keep a 14-day supply of medications, bottled water, and food on hand. Foreign correspondent Maggie... The protesters are opposing the government's zero-COVID policy and the extreme lockdowns that the government is still using to keep outbreaks of the coronavirus in check. The protests amount to the most significant public demonstrations that China has seen since the 1989 protests at Tiananmen Square that produced a terrible crackdown by the government in response. It's not yet clear how the government is going to respond to these protests, but we thought we would look at some of the economic questions surrounding both the protests themselves and the potential response by the government. So, Adam, I mentioned that the protests are sparked by the zero COVID policy of the government, and that in turn is made necessary by China's inability so far to vaccinate the country at sufficient levels. So, yeah, just a basic question. Why hasn't China been able to organize a successful vaccination campaign, you know, the protests are pointing out that it is a big authoritarian government. So yeah, why can't they manage this? I mean, it is the trillion dollar question. It's it's a trillion dollar question because it moves the entire world economy. Um, and I, I have to say, I think with, with all due modesty, we should simply say that we don't have a very good answer to this question. It's one that, I, I mean, I've been desperately searching for some inside good reporting on it. And I think the majority of observers say that it is in some senses mysterious. It's truly, I think, a a profound policy failure Um, because um, China does have vaccines that would work. So that, you know, it's often said, well, if only they, their problem is they've gone vaccine nationalists and don't have one of our trick Western mRNA vaccines or have been too proud to import um, uh, uh, Western vaccines, all of which would no doubt have helped. And they have been notably sluggish in licensing 
the BioNTech Pfizer vaccine. And, you know, it's been licensed for use by foreigners, but not by Chinese in, in Hong Kong and so on. I mean, it's a bit of a ridiculous situation, but that can't be the fundamental cause because the fact of the matter is that the Sinovac and Sinopharm vaccines, which were early on the scene, if boosted, so not just the original two-course dose, but with a third dose, are perfectly adequately effective in um, covering against extreme illness and death. So they would do the job if they could get three doses of the national Chinese vaccines into people's arms. But the astonishing thing is that only about a half of the Chinese population has vaccine-based um, immunity in that sense, so three doses. And Initially, the vaccines were limited to people under the age of 60. It was an extraordinary decision to focus on the workforce rather than the elderly population. So there is a substantial share of, indeed, a majority of those over 80 who essentially have no vaccine protection. And, and those are, as we all know, and as everyone has known all along, the most vulnerable group. And um, only now, really, I think, under the emergence of a true impasse, I mean, there have been energetic moves to increase vaccination throughout this year as it became clear that Omicron is sweeping in. And the, and the crucial thing to realize is, as it were, that we're dealing now with Omicron, which is less deadly than Delta, but vastly, vastly more infectious than the COVID, which the Chinese successfully contained in 2020. So it's crucially important to build new defences. And, and as Omicron swept in, they began to realise this and ramped up the pace of vaccination, but then came to a standstill again over the summer and have now apparently resumed vaccination. But this regime, which is capable of extraordinary levels of control in so many respects and imposed this incredibly draconian shutdown, lockdown on Shanghai, 27 million highly energised, mobilised people were locked down for, you know, for weeks on end. It can't get, apparently vaccination jabs, three of them in quick succession into the arms of the elderly Chinese population. It's truly, it's truly staggering. I mean, having said that, and it, and it will go down in history as a great failure of Chinese policy. Um, and it conditions everything else because it means that zero COVID at this point, and this is a point I want to drive home repeatedly in, in, in this segment, is, is not some capricious you know, vanity project of Xi Jinping, who's obsessively, you know, in the business of stamping down COVID. It is currently their best tool in what is an incredibly dangerous situation because they have essentially an immuno-naive population. And when we say, you know, why did the Chinese not develop a successful vaccine drive, we should, after all, remember that our quote-unquote successful vaccine drive, which has now enabled us to return to ordinary life, is simply what they got to with zero COVID in 2020. Remember back to 2020, the, the, the only place in the world that had a normal existence was China in 2020. And we got there by way of an attritional process in which we don't just have vaccine immunity, but we have herd immunity as a result of the exposure of the vast majority of the population to COVID. And that cost in the United States alone 1 million lives. So this successful vaccine model, which we hold out, is, 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 a, is, is a disaster from China's point of view. They are still trying to avoid what happened to us. Which, and the benchmark for that, of, for them, is one million deaths. That's what they're trying to avoid. And we, we have not actually yet seen whether any of the vaccines, mRNA or the Chinese version, even with full um, boosting, how they stand up in a population which basically has zero exposure to COVID in any form, right? Because in the, in the European and American Latin American cases, the vaccines piled on top of considerable amounts of natural exposure, 
quote unquote to the to the virus in China because of the success of zero COVID. Really, virtually no one has any exposure to COVID, and they're building up now rapidly. But the the, the natural exposure levels are really rather low. So. They're in uncharted territory, but but your question is absolutely on point, and it is the question I think that will be asked about the CCP regime forever after: is how on earth did they not see the necessity of moving to three doses for the elderly population in particular as soon as they could possibly provide them, which would have been as early as last year? Yeah, when you say that the policy is necessary, I mean it gets me wondering what exactly are the other possible, even just speculate on what what the other possible reasons for not pulling off this vaccination campaign are. I mean, clearly they're comfortable with coercive measures, as you pointed out, with these lockdowns, and they're capable of other logistical efforts that are taxing. I mean, the lockdowns themselves are logistically taxing. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a you know there is there is considerable squeamishness about the medicines themselves, right? The regime is rather, um, I think, foolishly indulged in hmm. and allowed a variety of different conspiracy memes about hmm. vaccines to circulate, including about Western vaccines. But there has, in a sense, been a destabilization of confidence in vaccines. What the regime didn't do was to create a kind of united front. The vaccines are good. All vaccines are basically, you know, this is essentially the same as the AstraZeneca one, and the AstraZeneca one came from Oxford. So it could be, you know, it's all the, you know, and the Russian one is essentially the same too. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, like the Sputnik version. Mm. And so what the regime didn't do was engage in a broad front. Vaccines are good. Everyone should have them. Chinese should have them in the same basis as everyone in the West. Instead, it was this sort of vanity project vaccination politics, which I think is really destabilizing. Yeah. And they become a victim of that to a degree. I think I think this is also revealing the fact that Chinese authoritarianism in many respects is not quite how we imagine it. And as you see that also in the protests that where really, really quite um casual abuse is directed at the Chinese police. And that's far more common in everyday life in China than you would imagine. So the capacity of the regime to actually reach the, you know, in an in a in a society which still venerates um uh, the elderly. Um, to a very considerable extent, the 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 resistance of families to exposing their you know cherished family members to what the regime itself has allowed to become anathematized um, you know medical interventions, I think is 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 at the, at the heart of this. And so they've shrunk from doing it because it would be considered a highly, highly intrusive thing to do. And it is, of course, rather different to police people individually to crack down on a Tiananmen Square demonstration or literally to coerce every single elderly person in China to have three jabs in their arm. Those are three, I mean, coercive is not the, you know, these are three rather different forms of coercion. So let's say outbreaks do happen across China. Let's say they loosen the zero COVID policies, loosen the lockdowns and infections spread. As we've seen in other countries around the world, a lot of the people infected are going to need medical services. So yeah, what is the state of the Chinese healthcare system, Adam? I mean, how much does China spend on its hospital system compared with other countries? Well, I mean, it spends what you would expect a middle-income country to spend, broadly speaking. It's not exceptional in that respect. It's just that that puts it in harm's way. So it does not have anywhere near the kind of, it has, you know, say one-tenth the number of ICU beds that Germany does per 100,000 people. Um it it has one quarter of the ICU beds that the United States does. 
um, it has far too few nurses. Um, so China has a highly effective and successful health system in the sense that its life expectancy as a result of the COVID disaster actually exceeds that of the United States currently. So at a very broad-based uh, um, general practitioner level, the system works especially well for people in the cities. Um, but one of the reasons why the regime has so doggedly stuck to the zero COVID policy is that they saw in Wuhan in 2020 what happens when a successful but still basically middle-income country is hit by a disaster like this, and that is that its health care system does risk becoming spectacularly overwhelmed. Um, and the problems are even worse in the countryside of China. So where the provision with hospitals and doctors is roughly half what it is in the cities. So it's a highly unequal society. About half, 500 million, half a billion Chinese remain in rural areas which are underserved. And if you look at the experience, not of Hong Kong, which is a rich city, but if you look at the experience, say, of the United States, Ultimately, the mortality that piled up from COVID in the United States was much heavier in Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas than it was, say, in Florida or New York, where we initially expected these, uh, the mortality to be highest. So it's in poor, underserved communities in the end that this virus does most damage once the infection takes hold. And I think that is the concern in China, that the pandemic will ultimately expose this weakness. It's hard to call it a weakness, given their life expectancy is now higher than that of the United States. And they are a country at a much lower level of income, regardless of how you measure it. But would this system take the blow of a pandemic? Uh, that, I think, is very much open to question. Part of the problem is the funding of the system largely requires private funds. And so people in Wuhan were very late to go to the hospital because they were afraid of being bankrupted by hospital bills if they ended up in hospital. So this is a fragile system. Uh, uh, it, it extends insurance only to the most privileged workers in the cities, hundreds of millions of people, but a fraction of the overall population. And so another element of the calculus on the part of Beijing right now is exactly the same flattening the curve kind of logic that we all endlessly debated in 2020, namely how can they contain the, the impact. That, I think, is the thing to wrap our heads around here. No doubt there is Xi's ego and the political reputation of the regime at stake, but this is also back to 2020 in terms of the basic public health dilemmas. Got it. Uh, we do need to take a break here. And we will be back in a second to talk about how do protests in this kind of situation produce change? So if we were to speculate on the zero COVID policy staying in place and the you know associated lockdowns staying in place as well, that got me wondering how do normal Chinese people deal with that situation? I mean, have the lockdowns been compensated by economic policy in ways that we might remember from the lockdowns here in Europe or the United States? There were subsidies for salaries and other kinds of assistance to businesses. Are, are Chinese businesses and workers receiving assistance and subsidies from their government? The crucial thing, I think, to say so far is that the Chinese, after all, haven't had to do a nationwide European-style lockdown. Um, uh, they've done it city by city. 
Uh, and of course, Chinese cities are gigantic. Like you know, Shanghai, twenty-seven million people, is larger than you know large, the vast majority of European countries. So these are very large entities, and they do indeed provide a combination of support for businesses, labour law protections, employment uh, protections, um, which support businesses. But they have not yet had to sustain a six-month economic crash, right? That's just not been China's experience so far. If they were to have to do that, it would be epic in its consequences, both for China and the world economy. Um, In the spring of 2020, they did a lockdown nationwide that lasted for maybe two to three weeks, and it was effective enough to stop COVID. So they've not dealt with the full fiasco of a nationwide pandemic requiring a lockdown across the entire economy. And when they do face that, I think it's very difficult to see how they could avoid similar subsidy regimes because Chinese employers do have legal obligations to pay wages, uh, to continue paying wages for at least one salary period. And after that, they're required to pay a kind of minimum basic um, uh, package to their workers, which is fixed to the local minimum wage. But many Chinese cities don't have minimum wage provisions. The overall welfare state in China is very inadequate. And there are hundreds of millions of migrant workers who aren't even in this system, many of whom are employed um, in factories and construction work, and they are incredibly vulnerable. So China is really as I keep saying, embarking on the disastrous road to discovery that the West embarked on in 2020 and will have to improvise. Um, One um, problem that is particularly pressing for the regime is the giant cohort of university students who are emerging into the labour market. It's 11 million people this year in China who are entering a labour market that is in very bad shape. And youth unemployment in China is pushing towards 20%, which is, a you know, from the Chinese point of view, a truly catastrophic level. So that's been an object of particular concern with subsidies from the government announced to support the hiring of college students in particular to ease their anxieties about their future. Because as we know, the losing your foothold in the labor market as you exit college in particular has disastrous consequences for people's long-term earning. The most extreme Chinese response to the crisis, and this is what has caused the outbreak of protests, um, which started after all with the protests at Foxconn, is the so-called closed loop system where the question of subsidy doesn't arise because the factories and the offices go on working. It's just that the workers don't get to go home. And that's really the most draconian model, which avoids the problem of needing a public subsidy because the units of production essentially function then as quarantine units. And I think it was the threat of that model being extended on a large scale that, that caused the extraordinary rioting and scenes of protest at Foxconn. Um, because the stories of the of the extraordinarily horrible conditions in these closed loop factories have circulated widely in China, despite media censorship, the the regime cannot prevent uh, news of those those conditions spreading, and workers are for obvious reasons desperate to avoid being essentially locked into their factories for for weeks, if not months, on end. So all of those models have been attempted, including that the closed loop, the most radical one, which apparently was modelled on the Winter Olympics and then extended outwards to chunks of the economy. Um, But China is going to face very serious questions. The problem from from their point of view is that the broader economic setting is so problematic, right? So once upon a time, you would have thought that Beijing would be trigger happy with huge stimulus like they did, for instance, in 2008. But 
But on the contrary, right, in this year, or rather last year, they embarked on the program of bringing down the extraordinary housing bubble very deliberately, deflating that, and on the other hand, cracking down on tech companies. And both of those are, of course, extremely bad signals, bad, they have very bad impact on the labor market in the short run. They were thought of as stability measures by Beijing, but now coincide with this Omicron wave. And that that triple whammy of the crackdown on the on the tech oligarchs, the the effort to bring down the housing bubble and Omegron together, make a, a really a perfect storm. Meaning they feel like they maybe couldn't afford to kind of uh, bail out the economy in the ways they have in the past. It's not so much a question of affording, I think, because this is a closed loop mm. monetary system. They can just they can finance it. It's just it requires policy to go into reverse because their standard method for stimulating the economy was to launch a big infrastructure and housing push. Mm. And that runs counter to the entire logic of deflating the housing bubble. And so they find themselves caught, if you like, in a policy conflict, um, which will be quite difficult to resolve. And concretely now with a collapsing real estate sector. So, you know, from the point of view of consumer confidence, and we see this in the consumer figures for China, consumer confidence in China appears to have collapsed. Consumer spending has not come back to pre-COVID levels. What that's telling you is Chinese households are accumulating ever greater levels of saving, presumably. And um, that's also one of the cushions which is seeing China through. I mean, Chinese households, certainly those with more steady employment, have, by Western standards, enormous levels of saving. So those are also reserves that they can tap before needing, you know, urgent public support. So to turn back to the protests themselves, I should have emphasized just how far some of these protesters are going and the demands they're making and uh, in terms of how they're challenging the legitimacy of the Chinese government itself. Many are holding up blank sheets of paper as a protest against censorship. They're chanting uh, we need human rights. We need freedom. Some are calling for Xi Jinping to step down, trying to humiliate the government by singing the Internationale, the socialist anthem. This got me wondering, and this is a broad question, but how do protests in this kind of situation produce change in dictatorships? I mean, what are the potential calculations that protesters are making? I mean, what kind of theory of change might be informing their actions on the streets? Yeah, I mean, this really got me thinking because I think I mean, and it's, it's um, again, I think modesty is called for in, in our ability to assess this and also the fact that we speak from a position of safety, whereas the demonstrators in China, frankly, the demonstrators, uh, the Chinese demonstrators, both inside and outside China, are running really rather considerable risks um, in, you know, engaging in these incredibly imaginative protest forms, which we are celebrating on the outside vicariously by way of Twitter and social media and so on. Um for them, uh, for many of the people involved, this is a turning point in their lives and um, their career prospects and everything else will never be the same again if their faces are you know, identified by the regime. So the stakes are in incredibly high um, and one feels you know, sort of modest in one's ability to comment from the outside, I think, on, on what's going on and what the motivations are. I think it's, there, are, there are at least three, aren't there, different strands of protest here. I mean, one is... One is to do with the conditions in the closed loop factories. So those were the Foxconn riots, which are, by f I think, the largest in terms of participation and and violence and uh, significance from the point of view of the economy, because those are those are working people in one of the key factories in the global smartphone chain. So that's one dimension of this, and 
And protesting and even strikes by Chinese workers are not entirely unusual, uh, but this was a particularly strategic plant. The issue is highly political and the scale was really remarkable. So that's one facet. Mm, the sense one gets of those protests is that they are not extremely politicized and they are fundamentally about get me out of here you cannot be serious. There's no way I'm going to continue working at this plant. And no, I'm not going to accept being locked into the factory. And this is an indignant, um, you know, grassroots uh, a protest and a question of individual survival and people, you know, trying to get home to their, their families and out of this system. That's one element. Then there is, as it were, broad based um, indignation about the, the sheer perversity and, and coercive violence of zero COVID, which, of course, was then um, uh, symbolised by the by the by the news of the the horrible fire in Xingrang in Urumqi, um, uh, where ten people are, are alleged to have died as a result of the failure and the inability of the fire services to reach them because of the you know the COVID lockdown situation, and this unleashes a wave of of indignation on the part. I think it's fair to say of, of Chinese everywhere about the absurdity of the conditions that they're being required to live under. That The question, of course, is if you focus on COVID, what is the answer? What is the alternative? And the, the only way out from that is a policy of vaccination. But of course, it spills over into a much more, and this is maybe the third strand of the protest, a much more broad-based indignation following the party congress at the way at which she has transformed party rule in China towards this one-man um, personalistic circus. And the three things, as you say, are all overlapping with each other. But in terms of scale, if you like, the workers' protest is is the one that has been most dramatic. In terms of breadth of feeling, I don't think there's any doubt that tens of millions of people in cities across China are profoundly you know, infuriated by, if not hundreds of millions of people, infuriated and terrified at the prospect of Shanghai-style month-long lockdowns. And then there is a third element, which is this much more politicized protest, which includes, of course, resistance to the regime for obvious reasons. It's a hugely abusive and, and oppressive regime, but extends also as far as if you think about the protests outside China of um, Xinjiang separatism, for instance, where you essentially have nationalist opinion calling for the separation of Xinjiang from China. And, and all three things can be at work you know, in, in the protests at the same time. Is there a coherent theory of change? No, there isn't. And, and is this the same sort of movement as Chenanmen? I really think it's important to say how different this is because Chenanmen was months of encampment on, you know, it's difficult. I was trying to think, is there a location in the United States which has the symbolic significance of Chenanmen Square? And there really isn't, right? The, it's, in fact, there's few European countries where you could say that is the center of political power, the place you can occupy. And, and, that is what Tiananmen Square is for China, and it was occupied by an openly rebellious horde of thousands and thousands of students for months on end, and then they sent the army in, right? So that that juxtaposition of a kind of almost revolutionary style, I mean, it's maybe closest to the occupations of the plazas that you saw in Spain, for instance, during the Eurozone crisis, you know, a genuine challenge to state authority in territorial terms. That's, we're very far from seeing anything even remotely like that so far. Um, and I think that should also condition our thinking about what kind of a protest this is. Yeah, you mentioned Tiananmen Square, and that prospect has been raised of a potential crackdown by the government on protesters. You know, we are an economics podcast, so I obviously don't want to minimize the stakes here, but I did want to ask, what is the mechanism by which a crackdown of that kind would affect 
the Chinese economy and the global economy from there? I mean, would the impact come in the form of the crackdown itself or more the kind of second order international response, the sanctions, et cetera, that would likely come in the wake of that? Yeah, I mean, it's a really ghoulish conversation, this, isn't it? And I think we should be we clear about this. On the one hand, what's at stake here are a million plus potential COVID deaths if this gets out of hand and is not managed properly. The, the zero COVID issue is a matter of life and death, and that we should be very clear about that fact, and life and death on a huge scale. If we say we want China to go down our path, what we're saying is we should we're asking China to accept our kind of death rate, which is a million people in the United States. Um and on the other hand, yes, when you think about the protests and the potential re- regime response, you know, you and your mind turns to Tiananmen Square, which is one of the great massacres in recent political history. Um, I think it's very unlikely that this kind of protest will elicit that kind of response because, you know, that was a true martial law style operation. This isn't the current situation is very remote from that. It'll be and it already is. You know, phone calls from the police. We saw you at a demonstration. What were you doing there? Knocks on the door. Um, arrests. It's not clear exactly how large scale the arrests are so far, but of course they can take their time and do it whenever they feel like it. Um, the effect of this is 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 like the COVID crisis in general, I think, and I think that's really the driver here. Is that it increasingly separates societies from each other? It makes travel difficult. We are on the cusp of beginning to feel that perhaps uh, airline travel back to China was going to become more easy. And it's quite unlikely that that will be the case, given their infection rate right now. Hong Kong opened up for a while, and it's very unclear whether that can be sustained. And the consequence of that is that simply cities like Shanghai and Hong Kong, which have hitherto been the great, as it were, mingling spots, the melting pots of a globalized China, will become less and less attractive for Western firms, uh, for, for global firms and, and global people to congregate, whether it's at university or through or in business or in in global uh, cultural uh, uh, gatherings, whether it's you know art shows or or music festivals, and and that that I think is the long run effect. That's the effect that's going to be largest. Obviously, if there is, and it's hard to imagine, but were there to be an egregious, you know, uh, spectacular uh, repressive thing like Tiananmen, it, w- it would further it would further um, cloud relations. But I think far more pervasive and effective over the long run will be just the question of ordinary COVID lockdowns and how they're managed. And if China has to go the route, which it currently looks like it's going to have to do, because even if they accelerate vaccination, um, containing this is going to involve very serious measures for months to come, then the consequences will be the reverse of what many were hoping for at the beginning of 2023, namely an easing of the lockdown in China. Well, obviously, we hope it doesn't come to the worst in any case in China, but we will keep an eye on it. And so, yeah, we won't be surprised if we return to the subject in the weeks ahead. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Two's but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Two's listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TWOZ at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. 
And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone from local fishers to nuclear physicists on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. 
So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. 